That's a famous commercial tone, you know. None of you remember it, of course, but that's because none of you remember a damn thing anyway, so what difference does it make? I, I guess the only thing you can actually remember is the Roto-Rooter song, right? Roto-Rooter, that's the word. Another day, bring it up, please, there. Good evening, fellow Americans. Time once again to examine your name. there, gang. Uh, once again, it's time to, since it's, uh, you know, the end of the week and all that stuff, and everybody thinks it's going to be a great weekend. <laughs> what a joke. <laughs> uh, uh, I have uh, I have uh, several things I have to immediately get out of the way here, clear off the desk here. I'm seated at our vast, all-sweeping social changes desk here at uh, this radio station. It's an enormous desk made out of silly putty and it's covered with thousands of filing cards and of course it's the only way of course that you can tell what vast sweeping social changes are coming about and I've always felt that vast social sweeping changes are first uh, uh, shown or maybe perhaps even the first uh, described in the pop arts uh, you know the, what the, the, let's say what the slob is looking at and uh, I would like to <laughs> I hate to use that term but after all it's getting quite uh, Accepted, and uh, I, uh, I've been watching a little television lately just to see which way the uh, you know our society is going. And I, it just seems like yesterday, when almost any ch- any channel you turn on, you would hear the thunder of hoofbeats, and the rumble of stagecoach wheels, and the growl of James Arness, uh, or his uh, you know his compatriots. You remember when every every channel had nothing but a nothing but a, a western on. That was uh, that was the great uh, known as the great bonanza syndrome, and it was a bonanza for the guys who were in that racket. I'll tell you, the the, the uh, reruns are still coming into many of those guys who've retired long since to old actors' homes, but they're still alive and shooting them up on channel six SJ seven and dismal seepage Iowa and places like that. Oh yeah, it's still going strong. Well then, that period went by. You recall that, and then we entered the great medical phase. No, no, the great medical phase of, uh, of American television. And uh, almost any channel had uh, somebody looking a little bit like uh, George Maharis, looking very airy, angry. Always he was very angry at the old doctors who insisted on uh, obstructing uh, modern medicine. You recall that? They remember that period? Uh, there was uh, Richard Chamberlain was a clean-limbed doctor who kept bounding into the... Yeah, he'd come bounding into the operating room, and you expected him to have a Wilson tennis racket in one hand, you know. <laughs> Anyone for an epidectomy gang, you know, and he just had that look. Well, that, that was a great period in American television. And there were thousands of, uh, of uh, mythical hospitals known as Sunny, Sunnydale General. Great names like that. You remember that? Uh, and and uh, practically every uh, actor that I know had a had a turn in the operating room, and uh, it was a it was a big business for a while there. And we had a brief period when uh, almost any channel, usually in black and white, could, you could see a a rooftop chase 
between cops and some guy that was raising pigeons. For some reason, there were a lot of people who raised pigeons on television in those days. And uh, do you recall those shows? Uh, and there were always young, nervous-looking actors. Like at that time, John Cassavetes was continually being chased over roofs with guys named Vi uh, well, Gino. And uh, they were always shooting it out. That was the Naked City period. That was very short. That didn't last very, very long, though, no. And now we've entered into a period now where almost all of them have been sort of a giant, vast amalgam. I was just watching the other day, uh, you know, the, yes, uh, some of the TV shows now feature a Western doctor. So you have both. Uh, he spends his time. Have you seen that one yet? He does not have a horse. He drives around in uh, one of the newest conveyances that you often see on television, which is a camper. He drives around, and he has a CB radio. But he's nevertheless in the West, and he's a doctor. But he also involves the old Naked City days because he's from New York. He speaks a distinct New York accent. So that way you can get the, the New Yorkers watching, you know, <laughs> you get the guy. In. <laughs> so, you know, it's a kind of an amalgam. You never see people like this in real life. That's quite true. You will never see a young New York doctor treating hoof-and-mouth disease in Wyoming. But on television, you do. Uh, so, but however, we are entering a new phase, two new phases, that the pronged attack is now taking place. The phase is the dynamic, hard-hitting, young lawyer phase. We are a nation not of laws, but of lawyers. Don't confuse the two. I want you to think about that for a minute. We are a nation of lawyers, not laws. Have you noticed almost everyone they picked up in the Watergate dragnet was a lawyer? So don't think we're a nation of laws. We're a nation of lawyers. That's very different. <laughs> you can't get anywhere today unless you got a law degree. Now, if you can have a law degree and a degree in pediatrics, as well as be a licensed CPA and have a card in equity, my God, you'd have the world right by the you-know-what. You'd have it all going, wouldn't you? You could get yourself a... Well, of course, this is a... This is an ideal state. I'm, you know, I, I don't want to get into idealism here, dreaming. But uh, I see two new phases coming into slow evolution on television. We are in the phase now where people have a fantastic interest in anything that deals with the law. I mean, it's almost impossible to turn on a television set these days without hearing whoop, 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 and seeing red lights going around, right? Okay. Now, that's, that's very important. That's, uh, all right. that's, that's one phase. But that phase has been with us. Uh, the, the, the cops have been with us for a long time. There is a new phase I've detected. And that is the ramshackle family that is presided over either by a widow or a widower who has two, possibly in some cases, one son. They rarely have a daughter. For some reason or other, no dog. Who? Well, all right, you want me to tell you who? Red Fox, for one. Uh, why do you have to be told these things? You just turn on your set. They come out at you. Uh, Chico and, and the man and all these. There's a whole new face, see, of a family presided over by someone on the borderline of slums, incidentally, who makes profound statements about civilization and is surrounded by his loving sons who apparently have no sex life uh, who <laughs> apparently have no life outside of hanging around with the old man who is sitting there making his funnies all the time. See, well, now, this, this is a new phase. This phase, incidentally, has supplanted an earlier phase of the widow. 
There were thousands of widows on television at one time. And uh, they, they were all kinds of variations of widows. There was one widow, by the way, that was apparently having a curious necrophiliac romance with a ghost. You recall that uh, unforgettable series? Or have you forgotten that unforgettable series? That often happens to unforgettable things. However, nevertheless, there was, there was a period of many, many widows. Doris Day played a widow. Of course. Widows who have growing cultish offspring. And, uh, <laughs> and this, this was a, the period we went through. Hardly any family ever emerges on television intact. Mother, father, uh, three or four kids, and a couple of mean uncles. Uh, you know, this is what the, the average family is. But this, this, is a, this is television. So this is all becoming part of the modern mythology of our time. However, laws, I think, are, are uh, the predominant force in television today. Wouldn't you think? A fascination with laws and lawbreakers. I'm predicting a new one. Yes. Oh, yes. We are not only a nation of lawyers, right? But we are a nation now of tax collectors. Oh, yes. Uh, all right, now, would you please give me an echo chamber? No, wait, I'll tell you when. Just a minute, Barney. Anytime you're ready, you just nod your head. There, see, the head works. You see, it's got a hinge there. Right, all right. You nod your head when you're ready, and I will give you a cue by waving my left hand. I have not waved it yet. Now, uh, I could just see... <laughs> <laughs> I can see, I can see a new series. Some guy's going to really. I'm going to give some guy a great idea. See, uh, I, I'm. Uh, this will be. I can see this series coming out, played by somebody like. Uh, oh, uh, who could play this role? Uh, uh, no, Richard Boone is a little long in the tooth for this role. Uh, let's say if uh, George Siegel decided to go into television, you know, old George, he's liable to go in for the big buck one of these days. And uh, I can just see this new series being announced by, say, NBC or CBS. And uh, it's a promo for the new series. Coming, Coming soon. 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 County, County Assessor, Assessor. Starring, starring George, George Siegel as an, as an idealistic, idealistic young, young big city, big city tax, tax assessor who takes who a job in a small in a county. County, county. county, county Assessor, assessor starring, starring George, George Siegel. Siegel. And everyone would love to see the adventures of a young county assessor going out and foreclosing farms and, uh, and giving breaks, uh, tax breaks to poor families, you know, and uh, hitting the rich people. Oh, yes, uh, this, uh, <laughs> this, this I, it has a possibility, doesn't it? And he falls in love naturally with Suzanne Pochette, who's a young social worker uh, who has come to the country after... 17 years of social service in the slums of New York. She's come to the country now, to, as, as she says, to get with her roots. That's a phrase. You don't just say you come out there because there's a job. You, you do it because you want to get with your roots. And uh, so County Assessor is a great idea for a new TV show, isn't it? And, of course, you could have a big two-part, big two-part, uh, you know, when, you, when, the, when the important show is being done, they have a two-part sequence, correct? Okay. And you could have the, the big two-part one that ends the season called, and here we go. Don't, Don't forget, forget to, to forget. tune in Don't next week at the same time, time for the beginning, for the beginning of, a of a two-part episode, episode which, concludes which concludes this season, this season of, of County, County Assessor. Assessor. Our next Our episode next will be called, called The Foreclosure. God, what a thing that could be. And you Can't you just see the end of it when they're auctioning off the old widow's stuff? And uh, the young county assessor 
is is buying everything back. George, you know, would be spending all of his money buying her rocking chair back to give it to her. And Suzanne Plachette is holding her hand. And all the evil redneck types are saying, I'll bid $4 on a refrigerator. And George looks around and says, oh, what evil people we have in this country. Our county says, that's not a bad idea, is it? This is WOR New York. And don't think they don't access a little tax on you, too. Right now, you're going to pay it. Yeah, yeah, okay, I gotta tell you about these general tires, friends. With so many new kinds of tires coming out, you know, the bumpy ones and all that, maybe you're puzzled about making the right choice. Of course, you're scratching your head there. Here's a solution. It's your general tire specialist. Surprise! Trained to handle all your tire needs and automotive service problems, too. So if you need new tires, you can out of your general tire specialist. Sooner or later, buddy, you'll own generals. See Big Phil McConkey, General Tire Specialist at Gertz Car Center in Jamaica. Sooner or later, you'll own General. Don't ever turn my microphone off, Barney. Sooner or later, you'll own the Generals. Yeah, yeah. Sooner or later. Gee, that's a lovely song. I just can't get it out of my head. Just rings in my head. Sometimes I wake up three in the morning singing Sooner or later. Uggish. Uh, we have a commercial here that says at the outset, Good news! An exciting restaurant in New York City is offering good food. Well, that certainly is news, indeed. For a great evening, go to Les Champs at, uh, let's see, Les Champs is where? It's at 25 East 40th Street. And if you're confused about what that is, let's put it this way, it's spelled Les Champs. Yeah, remember him? Played with the old Dodgers when they were here. In New York, first baseman, good glove man, couldn't hit. Have a night on the town at Les Champs. It's at 25 East 40th Street, and uh, it's a kind of a nice restaurant. They have one line here, though, that is unforgettable as far as commercials are concerned. It says, door-to-door cab service can be arranged. They'll even walk you to your apartment. Can't you see the head waiter named Luigi walking you home to your apartment out there in Flatbush? You know, that, that's, a, that's an outfit they want you to come there. That's a 25 East 40th Street between Park and Madison, Les Champs. Now, do you have another one for us? Please. When our landlord said, move out, the building's coming down, we panicked. Could you see this 78-year-old company out in the middle of the street with thousands of men's suits while the wreckers begin tearing down the building? Gramercy Park's brain trust advised, run a removal sale. Everybody loves a removal sale. But you know what happens when you move. So much to do, you can't do everything. But somehow the day comes and goes, and there you are. And the day came and went, and here we are. Now Gramercy Park wants to sell a lot of men's clothing in a hurry. The best way is price. If you want a nice suit or a sport coat or some slacks at a price, go to 61 West 23rd Street. Go upstairs through the big iron gate. There's no obligation. Credit cards are okay. Gramercy Park is open to 7, Saturday to 6, and on Sunday from 10 to 5. The address is 61 West 23rd Street, New York. 
Hey, Jerry, what's the story? If you grew up during the Big Depression like I did, you know what it means to make a buck and to save a buck. Now, I'm not saying this is 1929, but I am saying it's still tough to make ends meet. That's where JGE comes in. So for all you guys who've been paying dues all these years and need appliances, furniture, carpet, and jewelry, JGE has prices that puts a little deflation in the inflation. If you work for the city, state, or federal government, or you're a member of any union at all, JGE can save you a lot of money on things for your home. Washers, TVs, stereos, living room, dining room, bedroom furniture, carpeting in all colors and fabrics. And at our jewelry department, watches, rings, and diamonds, all at prices that'll drive you crazy. So just show us your union or civil service card at the door. JGE, only for union members and their families. So that's the story, Jerry! That's the story! Oh, no. <laughs> have you uh, really? Have you had the sneaking suspicion that that Attila the Hun seriously is now in charge of the Western world? Uh, every time I hear that commercial, I keep thinking uh, of a of a great fantasy scene of of Ben Grower auditioning for a JGE commercial. You know, and they say, "Put a little life into it, Ben. Now we want some accent. A little, you know, this is New York." <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> but uh, oh, you know, I, uh, these are all the coming uh, the coming trends. I, I, I uh, New York is taking over the world. There's no question about it, uh, and uh, that's why the world is feeling alienated. Can't figure out what everyone's saying, and uh, you know, you go down to a place like Hattiesburg, Mississippi, they just can't understand. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they can't understand. You know, uh, Joel Siegel comes on. He talks about cockamamies and the. And he's constantly referring to egg creams. They never heard of egg creams in in uh, Dayton. I can tell you that. Egg cream, by the way, would be some kind of an ice cream. Yeah, it would. Uh, you know, like a like a milkshake or something. But uh, in New York, you know, we got our own thing going, right? Yeah, do you use it? Yeah, I, I one time I tried to explain to my mother what a shtick was, and uh, she says, "What? What is this thing they're always talking about on the Johnny Carson show?" And I said, "What do you mean, Mom?" She said, "Well, I, the other day I heard them say shtick." What does a shtick mean? I said, well, my, uh, uh, it's a, well, it's a shtick, you know, a shtick. She said, well, I, I, uh, I'm not sure. You mean uh, something that you, uh, like a like a broom shtick, something of that nature? I said, no, Mom, it's not a broom stick. It's shtick, shtick. It's like a, like a little thing you do. Uh, uh, how can I say it? A gimmick, a gimmick, you know? Somebody's got a gimmick, he's got a shtick. Oh, I see, a shtick, hmm. Well, I knew she didn't understand, you know. She said, no way. So, uh, no wonder the ad agencies are slowly drifting away, you know. <laughs> I mean, they, they never heard from a shtick. And, uh, like, like I tried to explain uh, to my Aunt Clara what a yenta is. And uh, she didn't quite understand it. I said, well, you know, my, you got to understand, that's New York talk. She said, but I, 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 I live in... Uh, I live in, uh, she said, I don't live in New York. And I said, well, Aunt Clara, that doesn't matter. Uh, if, you, if you don't understand New York talk, it is considered in New York, you must be dumb. You hear that dumb? You're one of those dumb people out there. And she says, but, uh, gee, I'm sorry, I don't know. Uh, of course, this is a problem that we have to face. And uh, television faces up to it. It creates myths. It, it, uh, it creates an Oz-like land where people on television live in. There's no known land like the Waltons live in. Now, I come from the Midwest. There is no Midwest remotely like the Midwest that the Waltons apparently live in. 
Uh, I would say it's close. The land they live in really is closer to the land of the Munchkins. Do you recall the Munchkins? Uh, you remember that bunch? Uh, or maybe the Gillikins. That was another thing. Uh, like, for example, none of the armed services that are ever shown on television in any of the series, like, you know, that you see constantly, have anything to do with any of the known known services that anybody's ever been in. Like uh, MASH, for example. Now, I spent four years in the Army. I have never seen an Army remotely like the one that is in MASH. But I guess people who've never been in one of these things think that's great. You know, they, <laughs> they really do. So it, we're creating a mythology that has nothing to do with the reality of anything that ever was, let's say, growing and spreading. It's like, uh, you know, in the early days of uh, Westerns, you know, back in the, in the days of D.W. Griffith, did you know that there were a lot of old cowboys around who were constantly getting mad at the Westerns? Well, luckily enough, they all died off. And, uh, you know, they were a pain in the neck. I mean, it was just terrible. In fact, a friend of mine who was an old, old cameraman, who was a retired cameraman who worked out in Hollywood back in the early 20s, told me about a terrible thing that happened once on the lot that he was working in. He was working on the Fox lot, very famous movie lot, see. And he was a cameraman. And in those days, they had just brought in the camera, the kind you didn't have to crank. And that was a big, new, uh, tremendous innovation. They had battery-operated cameras. See, they had a motor in there, so you didn't have to crank the thing. And he was one of the young uh, Turks of the camera world. He knew how to hook up the batteries. And uh, he was considered very advanced. He was, you know, he was a technician and all. And all the other old cameramans who, you know, the cameramen who wore the leather puttees and stuff, uh, they were known for their fantastic wrist action, and they could operate a camera at exactly 16 frames a second. Is that what you'd need, Jerry? Is that right, 16 frames? Well, they could operate it exactly, see, so that so that if they wanted to speed up the action, they could crank it a little bit slower or faster, see, and they could get all these various fantastic effects. Well, my friend Ralph came into the studio. He was the first battery-operated cameraman who'd arrived. And naturally, he was looked down upon by all the other cameramen. And uh, they could see the wave of the future arriving. And Ralph arrived with his battery charger and his C batteries and all the rest of it. See? And, and he could operate this thing. So he said that he, the first picture he was assigned to was this uh, great director, famous director, who uh, went all out. He did, he did all the things that all the great directors are supposed to do. He, he even wore a beret. And he had these black glasses. And he wore a beret, and uh, he was a European director, as all great directors were at that time. You see, America was going through a very definite, as it always has and never will cease to do, it's gone through a great period of cultural inadequacy, feeling of, uh, of inadequacy. If you notice, all our major awards on PBS, which is the American public broadcasting system, are won by British shows. You notice that? Well, that's not a coincidence. I mean, it's all part of the pattern. So anyway, he says he was working with this great director. You want to hear the story? It's a very interesting story. I've never told the story because uh, there are certain connotations which are kind of uncomfortable. And uh, yes, all good stories have certain elements of stickiness. That's the key to a good storyteller. So nevertheless, my friend Ralph, who is now an elderly gentleman residing in Clearwater, Florida, and, uh, you know, who at the, at the touch of a button will bore you to tears with endless, uh, ridiculous anecdotes about Greta Garbo and stuff. So he said, uh, he says he was, he was assigned by the studio, because this was an elegant 
European director that they had called in to direct this great picture was going to be a 10-reeler. Now, that was about a 17-hour picture in those days. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, they thought nothing of, of directing pictures in those days that would last. You'd have to go there for a whole week to see the picture. Did you know that one movie was once directed by a director, famous director, that if it was presented the way he envisioned it and it was not cut by uh, saner members of the studio, it would have taken you exactly six days of four hours to five hours a day viewing time to see the movie. Now, what picture was that? What was the director? Now, why do I know this? And I'm not even a film buff. You film buffs don't know about it. In fact, you know what he even did? He, 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 these guys were so autocratic in those days that he took over an entire city block of a city and had it cordoned off and just all the people had to just get on a stick or shtick, if you prefer it. They had a, they had a, they had a, they, they, the whole city he cordoned off. He didn't just go down and take over one street and film it. But the whole point of the, the film was this one block, you see. All the changes it went through over 700 years or something like that, you know. And the people had to age perceptibly. The natives that were living there. And they had to, you know, get married, divorced, to die and all that stuff. And the, he filmed all this stuff. What was the name of that film? Well, he, uh, I, I will give you a clue. This director was famous for the incredible style that he showed in removing his white kid gloves. Oh, you have guessed it, yes. Yes, you have guessed it. Well, anyway, this friend of mine, <laughs> my old buddy, Ralph, was working with one of these great directors, see, one of these, there was hundreds of, of old fakeroos who'd come over from places like Bulgaria and it convinced all the film guys out in Hollywood, who were nothing but fur merchants at that point, and not that it's changed much, but uh, nevertheless, he had, they were always convinced that the guy from Europe must know everything about film, see, because you wore those black glasses and you ordered wine with your meals, which, you know, to, to a crowd that was used to ordering root beer with its meals, the idea of wine was tremendous uh, uh, culture. So here he is, he's sitting with this director, and they're preparing now to film this uh, the first day of the film, big film. And they've gone out on location. Location in those days was roughly, uh, oh, four or five miles out of Santa Monica. So uh, they went out, you know, so they, they went out to location. There was a big vacant lot there, and uh, they're all ready to start filming. And the sun was shining down. My buddy connects up the batteries, and the camera's all ready. The scripts are all out. And this film director, incidentally, was known for his dynamic realism. He was a famous realistic European film director. Uh, realism in those days, of course, consisted of uh, actually once in a while showing the outside of a house. You'd point the camera out and you'd see a car going by or something. That was called realism. The people never acted realistic. I mean, no way. I mean, you know, with all this beating on the forehead and weeping and kicking in the doors and crying and, you know, pratfalls and all that. But realism consisted of showing you the outside of a house. It's not changed one bit. That's what any of you see uh, The Great Gatsby. There wasn't a recognizable human being in that entire picture. But there were real Long Island houses. See, so realism, <laughs> the concept of realism has not changed one iota. So uh, nevertheless... Uh, here we go. Uh, my friend is ready to film. He's got all the cameras all set. He's got three electrically operated cameras, and all the old-time cameramen were standing around muttering, saying things like, it'll never last. Uh, this is just a passing phase. Uh, all these cockamamie new things are coming in. They're ruining the business. 
you know, and all that stuff. So he's sitting down there. He's all set to get ready to film. And the director got out his megaphone. They had megaphones. He says, you know, he was really pleased to see that this guy used a megaphone and he had whipcord riding trousers. All good directors wore those, you know, those high water pants with the leather puttees and all that stuff. And he gets out and he gets out his megaphone. And he immediately hurls two expletives in German at the crowd, which means, you know, shut up. Uh, things like, uh, We are about to film an epic of the Old West. Now, I am a man who demands the utmost of all the peoples who work in the films that I am in. I am going to know that you are giving me everything or you shall be on the film. Any questions? Of course, everybody's, you're not going to say no. I'm just going to dog it through the film, you know. So everybody's standing around waiting. And at that point, he made his big announcement, which caused endless confusion. He said, I wish to introduce to all of you here now at this time, this man who is sitting at my left. His name is Pete Wolfgasnik. Now, Pete is an actual cowboy we have brought in from Utah. Pete is 97 years old, and he has lived through all the things we are about to film. Pete came out from Pennsylvania just after the Civil War, and he has gone through all the Indian fightings. Well, here's this old duffer sitting there, see? And uh, my friend takes a look over there, and it was an actual cowboy. Well, at that point, they start to film. You know, the, the stagecoach comes... And uh, there's a lot of Indians yelling and hollering. All these Indians, incidentally, who had just maybe six or seven weeks before been working in soda fountains in places like Queens. And had come out to make it big in the pictures, you know. Uh, they were all out there riding these horses badly. And uh, so he sits there and watches this whole scene begin to unfold. At that point, the, the director has got this megaphone. He keeps saying, all right, now let's just go again. Now we will start over by the big tree. Now, all right, at the count of three, I want to see the stagecoach moving from the left, and I want it moving fast by the time it gets in front of the camera. All right, now, all ready. Let us go. One, a two, eins, zwei, three. And at that, they come charging again. And there's a lot of dust, and my friend is turning on the cameras, and uh, they're filming this thing. It took him about maybe 40 or 50 minutes to film the first Ten seconds of the film, which just showed, you know, the, the stagecoach roaring by. That was supposed to be the opening shot of the film. And then, he said, it began to happen. The old guy, sitting next to the director, began to complain bitterly about something to do with the stagecoach. And apparently the director took umbrage at this because he says to stagecoaches, I have seen many a stagecoach and I do want to hear about the stagecoach. He said, that stagecoach is right. They have spent over $40,000 building the coach, and that's the way that coach is going to be. And at that point, the old cowboy says something like, uh, well, damn it, the hell, that don't look like no stagecoach I've ever seen out there on the old Chisholm Trail. In fact, I'll tell you this about them stagecoach. They didn't have no sign up there on the top that says Overland Stagecoach Company. They had no sign on there like that. And not only that, them guys are riding horses. Nobody had no horses like that back in them days. They just rode these old brown horses we had. We didn't have no Arabs. I saw five Arabs go by there. We did not see an Arab out here until all you movie guys come out here. They don't have no Arab horses out there in the West. Well, at that point, he said, it was the beginning of a tremendous hassle that went on for one week until finally the great European director fired the cowboy and we got back to real filmmaking.
a real evocation of the old west. <laughs> and uh, and uh, this has always been this way. I remember one time a buddy of mine who was a lieutenant colonel in an infantry outfit uh, who had seen like 4,000 uh, days of consecutive combat in 18 different wars was called in by a major television show as a technical advisor in a film that was involving uh, Rip Torn. He was fired after 12 minutes on the set. So, uh, you know, let's face it, we don't want realism. Do you want realism, Barney? Hell no. I mean, for heaven's sakes, if my doctor, my own personal doctor, were ever, ever put in a series as a doctor, I mean, I think, uh, I think television would go down by 40% in its uh, credibility gap. Because, you know, he just, he keeps saying things like he'll put this little thing on you, you know, with the, with the ear things, and he'll listen to you, and you say, well, I'll be damned. And I'll say, what's that, Perry? What are you listening to? He says, gee, I can't figure it out. You're ticking. Hmm. And then there's a long pregnant pause. I say, well, what's wrong with me? Son, some people tick. I mean, you know, he never gets worried. Have you noticed uh, Dr. Welby worries about his patients? And more than that, he keeps coming home with them. I mean, you know, he's always, yes, he's, well, he's always home with them and arguing with them at home about how they should be nicer to their kid. And, uh, you know, how they should, you know, cut out of messing around with, with the, all that drinking and stuff. My, you know, it, I, I can't get my doctor to say anything to me. Nothing at all. No, no way. Like, like, uh, Six weeks ago, one of his patients died, and I said to him, Perry, what about that? He says, well, you know, people die. I said, aren't you worried about it? He says, well, that's the way it is. After all, he's 87. I said, what did he die of? He said, well, you know, I guess he's old. And at that point, I realized, you know, the clean-cut cases that they have on television bear no relationship to life. I mean, if you notice that Adam 12, the cases that they deal with are always clean-cut. I mean, there's never any, uh, you never see any uh, sharp lawyers suddenly jump out of the weeds. Say, hi, I got you. Police brutality. Okay, Milner. You know, nothing like that. No way. So I, like, I think that's why we like our myths that way. Have you noticed that, that senators are only two types of senators on television? The total evil, venal senator and Hal Holbrook. The only two types of senators. Hal Holbrook is always... Uh, a very sensitive, idealistic young senator. Have you seen that? Hal's been an idealistic young senator for over 30 years now. And that is not easy. I can tell you that. That takes a lot of work every morning for Hal. I know that. And uh, <laughs> But the, 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 we don't see any kind of middle ground senator, you know, like we all see all the time, our, our normal walking around senator. Uh, like, like uh, well, again, you know, that's the way laws are. They're not clean cut. The only kind of laws we're against are laws that deal with the other guy. Like taxes. I mean, have you heard this fantastic hollering about the, the, the new tax that they're going to put on income? And uh, <laughs> Well, you know, uh, the only guy we want to see taxed is somebody else. Because we consider we're all overtaxed, right? And that's why I say that the new series of television shows have got to feature Richard Chamberlain as a young, idealistic, young assessor who is bringing tax relief uh, to uh, people in the lower middle income group. Well, you don't see that? Well, wait. 
Now, if I had told you, if I had told you that a TV show would feature a guy running a junkyard, you wouldn't have bought it. That's one of the most successful shows today. You agree, don't you? Okay. And if I had told you one of the most successful television shows would be about a guy that purports to be a New York cab driver, you wouldn't have bought it. Not a few years ago, you said, no, Richard Boone couldn't play that. Well, that's Archie Bunker. Ah, yes, or didn't you know what he did? All right, I'll give you a question. What does Archie Bunker do for a living? Yes, but where? The fact that he works on a loading platform doesn't mean one damn thing. He once said where he worked. And Shepard's great vacuumatic mind uh, <laughs> absorbed that instantly. Where does he work? And what does he load? You don't know, right? See, there's nothing, nothing more sickening than a person who has half knowledge. A little intelligence is really dangerous, friends. The turtle is never going to hurt you. It's the chimpanzee this lab will do you in. Right? All right, now, next, next question. Uh, five years from now, can you see a television series? Five years from now, a television series of a, an expatriate American who has gotten away from all the taxes and is now living on an island in the Pacific. Now, how's that for an idea for a TV show? He has found this secret island, and, uh, you know, it's being played by somebody like, uh, oh, it's got to get this. There's got to be a comedy relief involved in it. So uh, let's say it's being played by somebody like, uh, oh, uh, Ernest Borgnine, right? And uh, his, his friend is uh, Jack Lemmon. And they're living on an island. They're, they're, they're ex-New York lawyers, or they're New York uh, middle-income people. Right? Middle-income people used to live in a brownstone on East 55th Street. And they read New York religiously. They, you know, they bought all the plants and everything you're supposed to have when you're a New York uh, apartment dweller. And uh, they read, uh, uh, they read uh, oh, uh, George Plimpton religiously. They never missed George Plimpton. Uh, Judith Christ was their... Uh, was their guide to all things uh, uh, aesthetic. And uh, now they've finally given it all up. Can't you see this series? And they're living on an island in the Pacific. They've tried to get away from it all, you see. That's the whole point. That's what television is. It's an escape route. Now, this is an idea for a TV series. And they keep talking about it. They keep getting papers. See, that's, that's the thing. The plane flies over, see, every day and drops them. It's the plane from, from uh, Mora Mora on its way to Tucobanga. And it flies over and drops them their daily paper. And so here's Ernest Boyd now. He says, hey, you hear what happened now? They're putting a $700 tax on every car in New York. And not only that, <laughs> not only that, they're charging you 17% uh, sales tax on any purchase over three cents. And at that point, that's the beginning of the whole episode, see. And, uh, and I, I see this as a, as a really viable TV series, and it will give, of course, a lot of people an idea. Did you know that today, one of the biggest desires on the part of almost every uh, resident of an, of, an, of, a, of an urban area is to own an island? Did you know that island sales are booming like crazy? People want to own an island. The idea of an island has very deep connotations psychologically to cut yourself off from, live, uh, live the elegant life like all those Alfa Romeo drivers.
the voice of a legendary Alfa Romeo. In the 1935 Millimilia race, an Alfa Romeo finished 42 minutes ahead. A machine built by men with a passion for sport, engineering supremacy, and safety. They still build them today for the road. Like the Alfa Romeo Spider Veloce convertible designed by Pininfarina that outhandles many of the world's most costly cars. A machine that gives you a new sensation of control and whose four-wheel disc brakes are the envy of the industry. A machine whose aluminum engine and fuel injection system Motor Trend magazine reports can squeeze 29 miles out of a gallon. Maybe your driving can too. Why drive a car when you can drive a legend for under $7,000? Alfa Romeo. What costs only 15 cents a day and contains coupons that can save you several dollars a week? As smart shoppers all over Long Island know, the answer is Newsday, the Long Island newspaper. You've probably seen the money-saving grocery coupons in the advertising pages of Newsday, but maybe you haven't realized how valuable they really are. Then listen to this. During a recent 12-month period, the value of discount grocery coupons in Newsday averaged about $28 a week. That's right, $28 a week. Now, obviously, no one can use all these coupons, but you can easily use enough of them to save $3, $4, or more every week. So grocery coupons are one good reason you should get Newsday. But there's an even better one, and it's simply this. Daily and Sunday, Newsday is one of the very best newspapers in America. Newsday, Long Island's own newspaper. I have to. Uh, I have to amend my uh, predictions. It'll have to be a young, idealistic, black woman tax assessor with a degree in sociology. That that would be a that would be dynamic. See, she's an ex-policewoman from New York who at one time was a surgeon at Bellevue. You like that? And she's working in a western town. See, so she can ride a horse too. You know, it's got to be in there. Bring all that in. And Richard Boone is the. Uh, is the gruff old mayor of the town, right? And he keeps saying things like, it'll never work in this town. And of course, we know damn well it'll work. So, uh, you know, it kind of gives you a nice warm feeling. It does. I wonder what state that is that the Waltons are supposed to live in. Yeah, I once heard that it was supposed to be Iowa. That don't look at all like Dubuque. I've been in Iowa. No way. Uh, that's that's, uh, that's uh, television Iowa, right? Just like TV New York. Nothing to do with Queens. Right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> TV Wyoming, too, has nothing to do with Wyoming. I mean, you ever been uh, in one of the big motels in Wyoming? You never even knew that they had... Oh, you didn't know that, huh? They got roads in Wyoming. You'd be surprised, yeah. Taxes, the whole bit. They even got pollution. Oh, yeah, I know. One guy that's coughing his lungs out in Cheyenne. So, you know, you don't see that. See it, do you? That's what you got the box for, right? Even our news is now escapist. Man. You know, I think Watergate was a great escape for us. Sure. And a lot of us miss it. Yeah, this is WOR New York. Stay tuned for In Conversation, friend. <laughs> 